And what we are going to endeavour to do this evening, I'm not sure whether time will permit us to do it all, is uh, to take an overview of the remainder of the chapter. It is my intention to come back and look at one or two or possibly all of these incidents in greater detail in coming Sunday evenings, but this evening it seemed that there would be value in uh, taking an overview of the remainder of Mark 12 as we read of these six separate incidents where there is difference between Jesus and those who are opposed to him. From verse I'm sorry, I said verse 13. Uh, yes, it is verse 13, correct. Verse 13 of Mark 12. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, Whose portrait is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. Then the third incident in verse 28. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well, well said, teacher, the man replied. 
You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more, more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him, dared ask him any more questions. While Jesus was, was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, How is it that the teachers of the law say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. As he taught, Jesus said, Watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. Well, this is the word of the Lord to us, and to his name be all praise and glory. Now this evening, as we continue in our studies on these Sunday nights in the Gospel of Mark, we've come to the middle of chapter 12 of this great Gospel. And I, as I've been considering in these previous days as to how we will approach these various incidents, it seemed to me that it would be good to take an overview of the remainder of this chapter. It is a very remarkable chapter indeed, beginning, as we have seen, with one of the most familiar parables that Jesus told, the parable of the tenants that we explored, you recall, last Sunday evening together. But the remainder of this chapter is taken up in a very remarkable way by six incidents. And as I considered these incidents in preparation for the service this evening, it struck me very forcefully and very powerfully, but they are divided, as it were, into two rounds of three. And we could almost take an illustration from the sport of boxing and the boxing ring, because in a very remarkable way, what is happening in these verses that we read together is that Jesus is being uh, attacked 
by his enemies, the scribes and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, in the first three incidents that are recorded in this chapter. And in the second three incidents, what we might call round two of the contest, Jesus, in a remarkable way, is responding to these attacks. In the first three, he is on the defensive. In the second three, he is on the offensive. And in a very remarkable way, the whole of the remainder of this chapter then might be called trying to get the better of Jesus. I was going to use the word that is current, I believe, in the United Kingdom of worsting a person. And my secretary very wisely advised me that this is not current phraseology here in North America. We are accustomed to speaking about getting the better of people, but we're not accustomed to speaking about worsting people. Well, I commend it to you as a very good use of the English language, unfamiliar as it may be to you. Well, as I say, in a remarkable way, these six incidents of this chapter bring some very powerful lessons to bear for us, I believe, in our Christian lives and in our Christian living. And you'll notice that the first three incidents, when Jesus is on the defensive, deal with the paying of taxes and the question of marriage and that great Question, what is the most important of God's commandments? And the second three incidents where Jesus himself is now on the offensive and is, as I say, worsting his enemies are the incidents of the question of the Messiah and the ecclesiastical incident of those that desire priority in the Jewish church and the final and lovely incident, the question of stewardship. Now, as I indicated in our reading of this passage a few moments ago, time permitting, I want to take an overview of all six incidents. Sometimes it's very helpful to have a bird's-eye view, as it were, of where we are going. And time permitting, this is what, by God's grace, we will then endeavor to do. Now, first of all, I want you to notice with me that there is the political question that is addressed to Jesus in verses 13 through 17 of our passage, the question of paying taxes to Caesar, the question of our responsibility to governmental authority. Now, it's very significant how this question arises in these verses 13 through 17. Do you notice there in verse 13 that there is an extraordinary and a very striking alliance that has been struck up between the Sadducee, I'm sorry, the Pharisees on the one hand and the Herodians on the other, who have combined together, according to Mark, to catch Jesus out in his words. It is a very clever and a very subtle trap that they have laid for our Lord and Savior. And one of the very striking things is that men who hold very opposite convictions have been drawn together in the single desire to entangle Jesus in the presence of the crowds. 
and to make him say something that on the one hand might be politically dangerous for him and on the other hand might be religiously dangerous for him. Because what is happening here, you see, is this. But the Pharisees are the representatives of religion. They were the exclusive religious party who normally would not join in any alliance with others, not even the Sadducees, which were their counterpart in religion, and certainly not with a political party, the Herodians, whom they normally detested and despised because of the Herodians' collaboration with the Romans. And likewise, the Herodians had only one interest, and that was political, as their name implies. They were supporters of the Roman sovereignty in Palestine. They believed in the right of the Romans to govern the land. And many of the Herodians, we know from the Jewish historian Josephus, were descendants of Esau. They had no Jewish blood in their veins at all. They were not Jews, in essence. And they were, in fact, puppets of the Roman government. Now, the point is that in this most unusual alliance, an alliance of opposites, if you like, the one thing that draws men who are in these positions together is united opposition to the truth and to Jesus. And we've seen this, I believe, again and again, all through the history of the church. Men who have nothing in common in any normal way are suddenly drawn together by their desire to oppose and to defeat, if, if it is possible, the progress of the truth of God. You see this in the days of the Reformation in the 16th century. You see this very often in ecclesiastical situations of conflict in our churches and congregations to this very day. And you notice that they had sent them according to Mark. And the they there is clearly the priests. The temple priests and hierarchy had sent this unlikely and unusual opposition to entrap Jesus in his speech. And I want you to notice further that this question that they put to him is in no sense a question to which they desire a sincere answer. They are not seeking intellectual illumination. They are not seeking spiritual direction. They are simply seeking to impale our Savior upon the horns of what is apparently an impossible dilemma. Because the question they bring to him would involve Jesus in dangerous compromise if he answers yes on the one hand and if he answers no on the other hand. Because their question, their political question, is, is it lawful for us to pay taxes or tribute to Caesar. Now we know from the writings of Josephus again at this time in Palestine that the Jews were subject to a threefold tax. There was a tax upon their income, and I should be preaching this sermon one week earlier than I am. 
with many of you and myself indeed having filled in our taxation forms. Income tax is no new thing. But there was a second kind of tax which fortunately we today in this country escape, a poll tax, a head tax on every adult Jewish person in Palestine. But there was also a third tax, a land tax that was payable because of the Roman sovereignty over the land. Now, you see, it's these taxes that the Jews had in mind as they came to Jesus with this question, the Herodians and the Pharisees in particular, the tax coins that were paid to Caesar. Is it lawful that we pay these taxes, or is it not? Our heritage is that we are children of God, that we are called of God, that we are privileged of God. We are a chosen people. We are a chosen nation. Is it lawful to pay these taxes to a foreign power and a pagan power at that? Now, do you see that if Jesus had answered yes to that question, immediately the Pharisees could have accused him of compromise, of saying that he failed to recognize that the true Lord of Israel, their true king, is God. And also, in answering yes to the question, he would immediately have lost popularity in the eyes of the people, and they seek to impale him on the horns of this dilemma. But if he answers no to the question, then immediately the Herodians are able to go to Pilate and prefer a political charge against him that he has incited the people to political rebellion. And we see again the remarkable and the consummate wisdom of our Savior in verse 15, don't we? But he saw through this question. He saw their hypocrisy, as Mark puts it in verse 15. And I want you to notice with me that in a remarkable way he responds to this question so that he avoids both horns of this dilemma in which he is placed. He asks for a coin from them, Mark says. Now, you may not have seen the significance as we read the passage together this evening. Why did he ask for a coin from them? Was it because Jesus was so poor that he carried no money on his person? I believe that was not the reason. But although it is said of our Lord and Savior, he had no place where to lay his head, that he evidently had money on occasion about his person. And he certainly could have asked for it from Judas Iscariot, the bearer of their money, their treasurer, their purse keeper. But he asked the coin from them to show their involvement already in the payment of this tax. And it's a remarkable move on our Savior's part. By that very action, he shames them into the admission that they are already involved in paying it. And he reveals immediately their own hypocrisy. But do you notice... 
further the wisdom of his response. And he is saying to them, in effect, in his response, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. He is saying to them, you asked for this reign of Caesar over you, and you're getting what you asked for. Therefore, you should expect to pay for the privileges that it brings into your lives. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Now, Jesus well knew that in the year A.D. 6, Jerusalem was being governed by Herod's son, Archelaus, who was nothing but a political scoundrel. And it was the leaders of the Jewish nation who had gone to the imperial court of Rome at that time and asked Caesar to put in a Roman governor because anything would have been preferable to being governed by one of the Herods. They had asked for this. And the wisdom of Jesus' response, as I say, in calling for the coin and reminding them that they had asked for these benefits and they must be prepared for them, to pay for them, his wisdom was remarkable. And it addresses the question, surely, to us as we approach this passage, that we have a duty, certainly, to governmental authority. If we ourselves are beneficiaries of the ministry of the state, then we are duty-bound to pay for those benefits that we receive. And there is a place in Christian life and Christian living where we must recognize the authority of Caesar. In our day and age, the roads around us are maintained by taxes. Education is provided by taxes if we choose to participate in that educational system. There are many benefits of modern life that are provided by the state, and we are commanded as Christians to be in subjection to those who are in authority over us, remembering that those in authority have themselves been appointed by God. And the area of conflict, my friends, arises where Caesar's authority transgresses upon the, the area of God's authority. Because the second response we have noted of Jesus to their question is to render on the one hand what belongs to Caesar to him and what belongs to God on the other hand is to be rendered to God. So in this life, there is always that tension between our duty to the civil authority and our duty above all to God's authority. And in this answer, that Jesus gave in consummate wisdom, there is the balance that you and I are to practice in our daily living. What is lawfully required by Caesar, we are to render in full. And that includes the honest uh, completion of our taxation forms, the dealing with integrity in our financial transactions, so that the portion which belongs legitimately to Caesar may be rendered to him. 
But the moment that that lawful obedience to Caesar begins to become unlawful, it extends into areas of our obedience to God, then clearly our duty as Christian men and women is to resist the civil power at that point. Now it is one of the areas, I must say, where Christians find great difficulty and great stress, and this has always been so. And I don't intend this evening to get into those areas of the law concerning abortion and other matters, euthanasia, and what is the lawful response of Christians to the state in these matters. But I commend you to think through to a biblical position on these matters because it is important that we should maintain the balance that Jesus has given to us. Now I want to come secondly to the other question which we might term the philosophical question of verses 18 through 27. And you notice that it involves the Sadducees who have come to Jesus in these verses maintaining in their beliefs that there is no resurrection of the dead and yet bringing to him a question concerning the resurrection. Now we need to remember concerning these men, the Sadducees, that in the time of Jesus they were the counterpart to the modern liberals in our church. They were the ones who came to scripture and said concerning it only certain parts of it are applicable to our lives. Namely, the first five books of Moses. And the Sadducees believed and practiced the fact that Genesis through Deuteronomy alone is authoritative. And all the other scriptures are not to be received as the word of God. They were the liberals of their day. And the remarkable thing is that these men denying the existence of the supernatural of angels and glorified spirits and the resurrection of the body, came to Jesus and presented him with a similar question to that of the Herodians and the Pharisees. They sought in these verses to impale him on the horns once more of an impossible dilemma. Now you notice that the case is as one commentator has described it, the case of the much-married woman. The woman who was married to seven husbands, and that must have been very tough on her. Now, it is a purely hypothetical instance. It's most unlikely uh, that such an instance would ever take place. And quite clearly, they are imposing upon Jesus a situation that would not normally uh, be in our experience. Now the point of this question that they bring to Jesus is simply this. But if there is such a thing as a resurrection, then there is an impossible situation in heaven. Which of the seven men to which she is married will be her husband? Will it be one of the seven or will it be all of the seven? 
And again, the wisdom with which Jesus deals with this is truly remarkable. Do you notice that in his response to this question, he reminds them that they are ignorant of two things. One is that they are ignorant of the Bible. Verse 24. You greatly err, Jesus says, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. And the first thing then that he points out concerning their deficiency is their ignorance of the word of God. Now it's remarkable, isn't it? But through ignorance of Scripture, so many errors have crept into the church. Through ignorance of the Scriptures, so many heresies have sprung up through all the Christian centuries. And through ignorance of the Word of God, every major distortion of the Christian faith and of the biblical religion has its source. And the beautiful thing about the word of Jesus is that it is a reminder, if we would be true to our most holy faith, we must constantly be studying the oracles of God. It is the Bible that reveals that there is a life after death. It is the Bible that reveals that that life after death is no mere continuation of the physical life we know here on earth. And if we are ignorant of the Bible in any area of our faith, we are in the greatest possible danger. And I am thankful this evening that my Savior is not among those today who say that you may hold any opinion and still get to heaven. You may believe anything you like. And as long as your conscience is sincere before God, you will be there in the last day. I am grateful for the fact that my Savior confronts error and says to men who are in spiritual darkness, you do greatly err not knowing the scriptures. And beloved, when we have men and women within our congregation who graciously and lovingly but firmly are committed to the same principle, happy is our condition. But the second thing he says, you notice, is that you are greatly in error because you do not know the power of God. And what Jesus is saying there is very simple and very dynamic, that you have no awareness of God's power to change things. And the point is that he is dealing here, you see, with sightless men, with men whose vision of God is so limited that they will limit him oh, to, to, to the experiences that they know in this life. And their position, very simply, like many unbelievers today, is that when you lay that dead, cold corpse in the ground and it is six feet under, it is there for good. The dead will not come out of their graves again, out of their tombs. 
and they are limiting God to the experiences that they see around them. And Jesus reminds them from Scripture, from Exodus 3 and verse 6, that this is not the condition at all. And the beauty of Jesus' response, you see, is that he takes the biblical response, illustrating the power of God, from the very books that they recognize as authoritative. Do you notice that? Not from the 16th Psalm that speaks of the resurrection of God's anointed Messiah. Not from the 110th Psalm that speaks of his being raised to the very highest place in heaven. Not from other passages of the Old Testament that hints so clearly at the resurrection of the dead, but from the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses, that these sightless men recognize as being authoritative. Do you not see, he says, from the book of Exodus, chapter 3, verse 6, that God says, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. I am the God of these men. Not I was the God of these men 400 years ago, but I am the God of those who continue to live before me. And in one blinding flash, he has opened to them the truth of the power of God revealed in the scriptures of his own word. My dear friend, it is very encouraging this evening, isn't it, to know that marriage is an institution for this life. It is not to be continued in heaven in that form. And that as Jesus reminds us, we shall be as the angels who neither marry nor are given in marriage. And the reason is that in heaven, Everyone will be a brother. Everyone will be a sister in the Lord. It will be one great family, innumerable, as the church militant on earth has become the church triumphant in heaven. And the family of God will be there for all eternity without one member of that glorious family missing. And thank God. Every blemish and stain and spot will be taken away. And while we find it so difficult to live in harmony within this family of the church militant upon earth, there will be no such difficulty in heaven. And it is as well that that should be so, isn't it? We are in Christ and the institution of marriage wonderful as it is, is an institution for this life alone. Well, thirdly, and I'm going to finish with this, our time is gone. You notice that not only does Jesus deal with the political question and the philosophical question, but also, thirdly, the biblical question in verses 28 through 34. It is a personal question concerning the teaching of Scripture. Now, there is a sense in which this question quite clearly differs from the other questions that have preceded it. They are question 
questions asked in antagonism and animosity and opposition to the work and ministry of Jesus. But here is a question that is coming from a man who is sincere in asking it. But yet I want you to notice it is a question that is testing Jesus. It is a question that arises in this instance from a teacher of the law, from one of the scribes, learned in the law. And it was the regular practice of these teachers of the law, of these scribes, to extensively teach all the commandments of God to the people. This was one of their great functions. And some of you will know that they said that within the law of Moses there are not ten commandments, but 632 commandments. And they divided them into so many positive commandments and so many negative commandments. And one of the great debates in the schools of the scribes and teachers of the law was precisely this, which of all these 600 or so commandments is the greatest and the most important of them? And at the other end of the scale in their debates, they also asked the question, how can we condense and summarize all these great commandments of God into one or two commandments? And one of the sayings in the rabbinic schools, we're told, was that a person who really knew the law of God should be able to stand on one leg and summarize it. The five books of Moses. Now it's from this background, you see, that the question testing Jesus comes, Lord, he says, or Master, he says, which is the greatest of these commandments? Now what Jesus does is utterly remarkable. For the first time in the whole history of God's revelation, he does something that is utterly unique. In his response, he takes a passage from Deuteronomy and a passage from Leviticus that no one had ever put together before, and he welded them into one. And he summarized the whole law in that great statement that you and I should know by heart and should be a continual challenge to our Christian lives. The summary of the law is that we should love the Lord our God with all our mind and heart and strength and so on. And we should love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And it is so remarkable because no one had ever taken the passage from Leviticus that speaks of loving one's neighbor and the passage from Deuteronomy 6 verses 4 and 5 that speaks of obeying the Lord our God and loving him and put them together as the divine summary of all of God's requirements of us. And I want to say to you this evening as I close, that the effect upon these people was simply outstanding. Do you notice that they dared not ask him any other question? Because in summarizing the answer to that question, he is reminding us that love is not a feeling. It is not an emotion merely. It is not a certain warmth in our hearts or light in our minds or some emotional up 
that we experience. In Jesus' understanding of the requirements of God, it is an obedience that is a loving obedience to all that God requires of us. The mind is exercised. And I must know what the commandments of God are. I must know what his revealed will is for my life. The heart is exercised because my heart must be in accord with the knowledge he has, he has communicated to me. My will must be involved. I must want to do his commandments. My emotions must be involved. I must delight in the law of God. And in this way, the whole of my being is to be directed to the service of my Lord and Savior. Now the scribe could not say that this was true in his life, that it was true for him. He acknowledged that Jesus had indeed answered well. But we read nothing of this man becoming a disciple and follower of Jesus and only that Jesus said of him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And beloved, it's possible to be not far from the kingdom of God and yet not to be in it. And only by God's grace can this standard of our faith be brought into our lives so that we willingly practice that loving obedience to our Heavenly Father. Well, in conclusion, you see that no man was able to ask Jesus or dared to ask Jesus any more questions. Who would? Because when we try to get the better of him, when we think that we are testing him, what is really happening is that he is testing us. The amazing way in which he turns the tables upon all his antagonists should make us stand in awe. Do you have a conflict with your Savior this evening? Do you have a difference of opinion with him? Have you been arguing out something that he said to you and been saying, but Lord, what about this and that? And the other, I want to say to you this evening, it doesn't work. You can never get the better of Jesus. And the wise course and the only course is to be in loving submission and subjection to him. Let's pray. Our gracious and loving Father, we are thankful for this passage this evening. And as we consider the wisdom of our Savior, the amazing and remarkable response that he was able to give, we pray that in our hearts we may crown him as our King and our Lord and never, ever try to get the better of Christ. For his name's sake, amen.